The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association. Welcome to Season 5 of Retail Therapy, proudly brought to you by American Express. This season, I'll be chatting with a great lineup of leaders in Australia's retail industry right here in the Amex Lounge, including the CEOs of some of the biggest retailers in Australia and across the globe. We'll be finding out what makes them tick, what defines their leadership style, and how they got to the top of their game. Joining me for some retail therapy today is George Sakalis, Managing Director at Heinemann Australia. You may know Heinemann as a leader in duty-free and travel retail. The company is increasingly expanding to include perfumes and cosmetics, confectionery and fashion, to name a few. Our favourite stop uh, when we're flying internationally. And George himself boasts a very impressive resume, having held leadership positions of a number of large companies, including Nude by Nature, The Discovery Group and L'Oreal, just to name a few. So, George, welcome. Hi, Paul. So, George, tell us your story. Where did you start in your career in retail and what got you to where you are now? Well, it's interesting because it's a bit of a 360 for me. Because when I was studying at university, I actually applied for a job at Sydney International Airport at the duty-free store. Oh, wow. When Sydney International Terminal was just, well, Sydney International Airport was just one terminal and they added in an additional terminal. So there's Pier B and Pier C. And I was studying environmental law because I was going to go and save the planet and you know, work for Greenpeace and do all these things and fell into selling on a Saturday and Sunday night casually perfumes and cosmetics. And as you would know, Paul, the rest is history for me. So decided not to pursue that environmental law degree and moved into marketing. And then from there held four or five positions within luxury beauty. So I worked for L'Oreal, I worked for Estee Lauder companies, and I also worked for the LVMH group. And then sort of thought I needed to broaden my horizons. And I went and worked for Westfield for seven years. And ran their brands to retail division, which is essentially a a business where you would take brands and try to integrate them into retail, whether that be from a pop-up retail perspective, from an experiential perspective or a digital perspective, and then have landed here. So Mm. it's a bit of a 360. So I started here just under four years ago, was the head of operations for about 18 months. And then during the pandemic, not that there was much to do, but there was lots to do, but we'll talk about that in a minute. I moved into category purchasing and marketing, and I've been the managing director since January of last year. Fantastic. Now, we recently caught up because you had the big launch of the new Heinemann well, I don't know really call that a store. It's like a whole landing space, isn't it? What do you call, do you call it a shop? We do. We call it a shop. We actually call it Mega B because it's just so mega. But it's a it's a space in between the obviously departing customers and their gate, and it, it's a it's a fusion of obviously Sydney Airport's um, luxury retail and then our luxury retail across beauty fashion accessories, watches and jewellery. It is a place to get certainly tempted uh, before you go and spend lots of money on international trips. So those of you listening today that haven't been through, um, I've only been through the Sydney airport. In fact, you've got uh, other airports in Australia, don't you? Yeah, we do. So we hold the concession at Gold Coast Airport as well. And we're super excited that in September of this year, we'll also be launching 
a similar offer at um, Sydney Domestic Terminal 2 and Terminal 3. So the first time that we've had a foray into domestic terminals, I think globally, if I'm not mistaken, but obviously following the customer pattern and following the recovery, we all know that domestic travel has recovered a lot quicker than international travel. So for us, it was a natural progression, obviously, with the relationship that we have with Sydney International Airport. It was a nice fit for us. So we're looking forward to welcoming close to 17 million passengers through those two department store-like Mm. shops focusing on beauty, fashion, accessories, watches and jewellery. Now, you did spend a lot of your career, because that's where we first met when I was heading up cosmetics as a buyer, um, I'm a head of mm. buying at David Jones, and you were, um, I think, working at that stage possibly with L'Oreal or one of the other majors. What drew you yeah. to the cosmetics and luxury industry? Just the evolution of it, Paul. I think it's so dynamic. And obviously, working with brands and the opportunity to represent those brands in a local market like Australia was, you know, super exciting. And and we were obviously in Australia a little bit, not behind, you can say mm. behind, um, the Europeans and the US. So it's good. It was good to be part of the evolution of that um, that category in this market. And obviously, working with you know the likes of Meyer and David Jones back then. Obviously, it's a very different landscape today um, with independent retailers and online retailing. But it was just it was just the dynamics of that yes. um, that industry that really drew drew me to it. You sort of hinted at this. We, you've dealt with mainly global companies. Um, we were always seen to be at the backwaters and be behind. Do you think that is true today when you look at think about no. luxury retail? No. Explain that to us. No. Well, if you look at um you look at Sydney, Sydney, relatively small city compared to most of the other tier one cities globally, just from a footprint perspective, but also from a population perspective. And there you can't turn your head in the Sydney C V D without being accosted by luxury retail. Mm. So we are absolutely um, in line with, you know, global cities like Paris and London and New York and Shanghai and Tokyo with regards to luxury offering. And I think it's, you know, that's probably a mix of we've caught up quicker, but also our international, the destination being so international for us that we have the likes of the Chinese tourists. Obviously, there's a really big you know, Middle Eastern and a big Southeast Asian cohort here in Sydney that really love luxury. So for us, you know, when we looked at what we were going to uh, develop from a product perspective in duty-free, and we, we've worked on it for the past two years, to be quite honest with you, it was quite natural for mm. us to try to enhance or try to add on to what Sydney were doing. So Sydney, as you would know, have put 22 new luxury boutiques into into that terminal. And what we wanted to do is really complement um, that from a product perspective, specifically in beauty, but also from a fashion and accessories perspective to ensure that we're, you know, capitalizing on that customer that's really looking for luxury in this market. Yeah. Look, I understand too, George, that Heinemann are constantly looking to expand its offering. And you talked about domestic markets. Can you tell us why that scope has been widened? I think we've all learnt from the pandemic, fortunately, unfortunately, that, you know, the way that customers are interacting with retailers, with products, with brands, their expectations um, has changed. And also Mm -hmm. the international tourism landscape is also has changed considerably. And I I think we're we're learning every day that the, the tourist that was in this country pre the pandemic and the tourist that is here now is a different tourist and their expectations are different. But for us, 
it was really about, you know, we're a travel retailer at heart. We have been for 143 years. But travel retail um, for us was never going to be just isolated to international travel. If you look at our operations in Europe, specifically in Western Europe, where there's a Schengen and a non-Schengen passenger our travel retail offer spans across both domestic and international, especially from those core categories like beauty and liquor, tobacco and confectionery. But for us, it like I said, it was really natural, both with our partnership with Sydney, but also following the traveller into the domestic market. And we also want to be you know, a little bit pioneering and do something different. And I don't know that a domestic airport in this country has had the luxury of seeing retail at the standard of what the international terminals have seen for quite some time. So we're really excited about that. And then from a product perspective, you know, we continue to evolve our product offering at a store level, especially here in duty free. You know, again, the pandemic has taught us that eggs in one basket is not really um, something that we need to, we want to be sort of caught up moving forward. So we now have a really strong 50-50 offer when you're talking about what an Australian or a New Zealand customer is looking for in a duty-free store versus an international passenger, and specifically China, because they're our our biggest sort of travellers, we need to make sure that we're offering something for both. So 30% of our total assortment of 40,000 SKUs is Australia-made or locally derived. Right. And I'm super proud of that, and we will continue to build on that. You know, certain categories, it's easier. So liquor and food, it's easier. Um, We've got an array of incredible fashion brands in this market. And, you know, duty-free retailers at international airports haven't been seen to support those brands in the past. And I'm super excited. I don't want to share too much, but there's three or four international slash Australian brands or Australian brands that have an international platform that will be present at Sydney International Airport over the next couple of months. Beauty. You don't want to launch those brands here on the uh, Retail Therapy Podcast. You heard it first. <laughs> oh, oh, we've got a little bit more work to do. I'm um, a little bit more work to do. But if I, you know, if there's something that comes off over the next actually couple of days, I'll I'll share it with you guys, and we can <laughs> see how we can integrate we'll, we'll see how the we other go. one. You know, yes, Cora, Jolique. These, you know, incredible Australian brands that, you know, in the past um, we haven't really showcased, but, you know, we're starting to showcase them. So depending on the category, um, we're either deeper or we're getting deeper into them. Oh, fantastic. We'll watch this space for sure, George, and keep an eye on um, all the newness that's coming through uh, travel retail. Now, you hinted at this previously, but um, you didn't have a great time through the pandemic. And travel retail has been uh, truly in the spotlight uh, during the pandemic. It also is today. And most retailers actually, in fact, did pretty well through the pandemic because of the stimulus that was in place. But there are two cohorts that particularly did it tough. And they were CBD retailers because of the nature of people in lockdown and working, uh, shopping locally and working and shopping locally. But travel retail did it really, really badly and I think still is today. So tell us a bit more about the pandemic experience and what were your strategies to help combat this global crisis during that time? Well, I think, you know, when you wake up one morning, it was Saturday morning and you get an email via the airport that you have to close nine stores by 11.59 because the borders are closing and, you know, you wake up the next morning and your business has grounded to a halt. It's obvious that you needed to, we needed to think about um, what we were going to do to survive it. We're very, very lucky being a 143-year-old privately owned business with family at the core, it was a non-negotiable for us that the first focus needed to be around our people. 
um, and how we we manage that. And unfortunately, like most retailers, we had to let some really good people go mm. because we had zero business. I mean, you're talking about, I think in 2019, just before we closed, there were 600 people that worked for us just in Sydney, you know, predominantly in stores, but also a you know, uh, a, a big back office. So we needed to focus on making sure that we treated our people respectfully. And like I said, unfortunately, some of those people had to go. Fortunately, though, 40% of the people that we had to let go are now back with us. Right. So over the past 12 months where, you know, recruitment has, you know, recruitment's still a challenge, but, you know, we're starting to recruit. A lot of people are coming back. You know, we we pivoted, Paul, and I. You know that that words that words are used a lot, but we we opened up a little downtown store in Paddington where we, with the support of our vendor partners or our brand partners, we cleared stock that was coming in on boats, arriving two and three months after we had closed our stores. So we opened up a shop, and you know that shop in Paddington has now morphed into a, a store that we have down in Broadway, which is a bit of a a clearance store for us to allow us to to move through stock effectively. But we, you know, we also needed to, we were very lucky in Sydney. I say lucky, but because we didn't suffer the closures that, you know, our counterparts in Melbourne did. And also, you know, as being the number one city from a destination perspective, we also started to ramp up quicker than others. But, you know, during that time where we opened one store for a couple of hours and then for more hours and then a couple of stores, mm. We had to change our assortment. We had to focus on our Australian New Zealand passengers. We had to make sure that they were, you know, getting the things that um, they wanted. We we just needed to buckle down and ensure that we were um, we were just keeping our head above water. Even today, we're only at 40, 50, 60 percent regard, you know, depending on the numbers that you're actually um, looking at. But, you know, where there's quite a few flights back, loads on those flights are relatively low. Um, You know, you're still talking 30 and 40 percent loads on A380s that are coming in. And that's a combination of I still think there's fear in in passengers traveling. There's the obviously the cost of getting this far across the world, and we all know and have suffered that over the past 12 months trying to book a flight. There's huge backlogs in visa and passport renewals, specifically in China. But the future's bright, and even the past four weeks, we've seen a, a really nice increase of passengers coming through the terminal. So we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We're still not there yet, but we are definitely um, seeing an improvement. But really, the biggest focus for me was our people and, and ensuring that we kept communicating with them. We had a weekly Teams meeting. We had a weekly Teams meeting for the whole duration of that pandemic, and it was not compulsory, but I would get on and, and our pre- my predecessor, the managing director, would get on and we would talk to our people and keep them in the loop and what was happening and what we were updating them on and is their job keeper, isn't their job keeper, what do I do, how do we uh, navigate through it. We also, you know, we paid our people. We paid our people ultimately to stay with us. So yes, there was JobKeeper, but we topped up their salaries to keep them with us. And I think that was a huge testament to to us as a business and the foundations of, you know, we are family as part of that. When you look forward for travel retail, when which year do you think you'll get back to pre-pandemic traffic? I think I think it's late 24, early 25. Right. Okay, so yeah. it's a way way to go. When when yeah. you look forward to Christmas, George, how are you how are you thinking about Christmas and your planning 
um, for travel? We're very positive about it, to be quite honest with you. We're very positive because we can already see, you know, the announcement on January 8th with regards to the borders opening for China have taken a little bit of time. But like I mentioned, the past four weeks, we've seen a significant increase in Chinese passengers uh, or tourists coming in and then coming out. So we're really optimistic for Christmas. We're hearing 85 to 90% passenger loads to 2019. However, that mix of passenger is still what we don't know. And as I mentioned, I think specifically the Asian tourists that will come to Australia and their behaviour from a shopping perspective is going to be very different to Mm. what it was pre-pandemic. I think they're going to start to come to destinations for the reason of coming to a destination. I want to see places. I want to experience places. I want to eat food. I don't know if they're going to come here with shopping lists full of luxury like they used to. Right. That's interesting. I think there's going to be a nice balance. We also aren't on the tour group list as yet, as you would know. So we are not an approved destination for Chinese nationals to come here on a tour. So we're relying at this point in time on what we call a fit traveller, which is a free independent traveller out of China, which really sees them booking their own accommodation, their own holidays. However, that traveller is sometimes more so than others, a little bit more affluent. So there might be an opportunity to capitalize on them. But I think we need to continue to approach our business that the Australian and New Zealand passenger is at the core and is the most important passenger to ensure that we're giving them what we want from a product perspective and also from a service perspective. We've been saying at the uh, ARA that we're in this permanent state of disruption And navigating a crisis is certainly a leadership challenge. What do you think is the most important quality for a potential leader to have? I think, you know, I think they need to be transparent. I always say to my team that there's nothing going on in my head that I wouldn't feel comfortable sharing with them. So a huge level of transparency Mm. from a future state perspective, from a planning perspective. I just, in this day and age, it just does not serve leaders well to hold back information um, that you could be giving to your team to help them along the journey, like to create the journey for them. You know, where do we want to go and how are we going to get there? The other thing that's super important that's come out of the pandemic is this Building the right culture is one thing, but building a transparent culture of equality, and I don't mean equality male versus female, because we should be far beyond that. I'm talking about a diverse, a diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging culture that Mm. we've really focused on over the past six months. We've just actually launched our policy, which I'm super proud of, which talks to all levels of diversity, safety at work, you know, creating a safe space for your people and safe, not just for the physical, but safe for the mental and safe for who you are and your ability to be heard and your ability to feel like you're adding value. Because can I tell you, um, we know that there's lots of choices these days for employees and creating that EVP is one thing, but actually living it is is more important. So for, for me, transparency basic things by leading by example, getting to the trenches. I'm in store five days a week, 
I'm in that store every day of the week. It's important for my people to be able to see us and the corporate office in store. And we are a support office. Mm. When you've got 500 people out there who started work at 4.30 in the morning and some of them are going to finish at 11.30 at night, they need to to know that we're on that journey with them. Now, there'll be many aspiring leaders listening to our chat today. Do you have any advice for them on how they can prepare themselves for a a senior leadership role like a managing director's position? Ooh, that's a good one. Don't rush. Take your time. I was a managing director once before. I'm going to be very open and transparent Mm. and honest with you guys now. I was a managing director once before, relatively young in my career. And if I had the crystal ball um, now, I probably wouldn't have accepted that role because I think you need to take the time to understand what, you know, who you are as a leader or who you want to be as a leader and that the business that you're in, that you spend enough time in each of those core areas, being able to talk fluently around each of the the specific silos or, or, or the specific functions within your business. So take time, get a good mentor, make sure that you have someone that you can bounce ideas off, both personal but also professional and just be honest and be transparent with yourself, but also with the people that you, you you work with. You clearly have passion for the industry, particularly around the travel retail specifically. What's your favourite thing, George, about the travel retail industry? You know what it's like to be in store and watch people come through those immigration gates and just the buzz of the the feeling of looking at passengers who hopefully will become customers and their excitement most of the time to get on a plane and see a a new destination you just the buzz of working at an airport is incredible but the the other thing about the industry is that it truly is a global industry you know you are playing at a global level most of the time our product we get it first it's exclusive we get access to things that you know local markets don't always have but i just think Really, the most exciting part of the industry is the customer that's in that industry. Right. It is. It's changing, though. So, you know, the USP or, you know, of duty-free in the past of, oh, it's cheaper than it is on the local market is not the case anymore. It is about experience. It is about first to market. It is about exclusivity. It's about creating that moment with that passenger as they start to travel. And we've done a lot of that work, especially from a store layout perspective. You mentioned, you know, the store early on in our chat, you know, for us, it was imperative that that we created an environment that they felt like that they were on holidays already. That they felt it felt special. It felt luxury, and not luxury at an expense from an expensive perspective, but you know, luxury that you know it was an environment that they felt compelled to explore, potentially buy. But you know, we we're doing things differently. We've created incredible pop up moments. You know, we are highlighting things that you would necessarily not see in an airport. You know, we're Mm. about to, you know, over the next couple of months, do some things around art. You don't expect to see art installations in duty-free stores in airports, but we're going to do things like that because, you know, we want to balance that entertainment with retail um, and create a special moment for those passengers. I love it. So the holiday should start the minute you set foot in that duty-free store. Absolutely. Absolutely. Credit card in hand, ready to go. Now, tell me a little bit about how different it may be serving a global market versus a traditional retail store. Yeah, yeah. So the, the one thing that is significantly different is that the expectation of product, the expectation that I've seen it in New York, I've seen it in Shanghai, I've seen it here, I've seen it there. They expect to see it here. We're also a tier one 
you know, we're classified a tier one airport globally. So there is a massive expectation from a product perspective. And, you know, customers expect to see the best of the best. And also, if it's available anywhere else in the world, it needs to be available here. However, there is also a very, very important focus on if it's available downtown, especially in core categories, we we need to make sure it's available with us as well. So we see that brands predominantly in beauty, if a brand in beauty is performing well in a local market or in our local market in Sydney, yes. it absolutely is performing well for us as well. There's a direct correlation between what our partners on local markets are doing and the success of their brand. And and absolutely, when we're talking about 50% of your passengers being Australians, then you would assume that there's that direct correlation. There's an expectation that we have everything that most airports have. And, you know, again, Sydney Airport have delivered pretty much, you know, every luxury retailer that you could possibly poke a stick at within that precinct. So we need to make sure that we're matching that from a product perspective as well. What do you think the best strategy is to retain customers in 2023? It's a really good question. We're finding it, you know, I must admit, it's a bit of a challenge for us, right? Because on average, our customer sits and only sees us once a year. Yes. Unless you're a business traveller that might see us three or four times a year, but even internationally, you know, there isn't a big percentage of international business travellers. But for us, I think it's about, well, in general, I think it's about loyalty. Definitely, I'm loyal to you. What are you doing for me in return? And that doesn't mean flicking me a 10% discount voucher every month. That's really about understanding who I am as an individual and serving me content that's specific to, to me. And then, you know, certain certain retailers, certain brands, certain affiliations do it really well, and others, you know, just treat you like another part of their loyalty program. But for us, it's really about trying to understand the needs of that customer um, and, and really serving them the right content, and yes. content not just being an EDM, but just content that's important to them. I think the domestic opportunity for us is going to definitely give us a whole lot more insights into into travelers. So we will extend our loyalty program that we have internationally across the domestic terminals as well to ensure that, you know, if I'm traveling 10 times a year domestically, that I, I'm still relevant to what potentially could be offered to me in international and vice versa. Do you have a number one selling item that <laughs> that your customers just buy duty free, you know, when they get walk oh, yeah. through that um, duty free store. Oh, definitely. I mean, it, it it depends by category. But if you're talking about liquor, vodka is absolutely you know our number one selling spirit skew. Yeah, and in in beauty, um, I don't want to call out too many brands, but <laughs> between a Chanel Bleu for men and a Sauvage by Dior and a Number Five and a Coco Mademoiselle, um, you know, really those power brands, doesn't matter what time of day it is, doesn't matter, you know, the customer type, you know, those brands continue to just tick, well, tick along. Yeah, yeah, they're so certainly aligned to what would be happening, um, yeah. uh, taking your point, in uh, locally in department stores, I guess. So vodka and Chanel number five, that sounds like a good yeah. mix to me. Uh, <laughs> George, appreciate you joining us for some retail therapy today. All the best for your work at Heinemann and happy trading for the future. Thanks, Paul. 
Thanks for joining me today for Retail Therapy in the Amex Lounge. If you haven't already, make sure you hit that follow button on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You won't want to miss an episode. We can be found wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. If you're a new listener, you can find our back catalogue of new episodes, over 50 now, on our website. We've covered small business, sustainability, tech and innovation, and we even release a yearly Christmas mini-series. For more information on what we do at the ARA, head to retail.org.au. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, wherever you love to connect. All of the links can be found in the show notes. I'd now like to welcome Kelly Taggart, CEO of Roses Only, to the Amex Lounge. Roses Only is a leading Australian-owned retailer for delivered premium flowers and gifts. Its passionate florists, friendly floral consultants and dependable delivery drivers have brought joy to millions of people all over Australia. Formed in 1995, it brings together 45 years of floristry experience and established 10 florist studios in major cities nationwide, as well as some partner florists. Kelly, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Paul. Nice to be here. Since its inception in 1995, Roses Only would have witnessed a lot of change and development in the floristry business. What are some of the ways you've innovated and evolved the business? Yes, we've uh, certainly seen a lot of changes since 1995. Uh, Back then, I think uh, you would have been going into a physical florist shop to buy your flowers. And these days, you have a lot of options where you can buy online, whether it's uh, through your mobile phone, either calling someone and talking to a real person or buying online through your phone or your laptop. So it really um, provides a lot of advantages there in ways that you can order in all manner of types. We've even had someone that has called in while they were riding a horse uh, and ordered flowers on their way to whatever it was that they were doing, riding a horse, would you believe it? So I guess um, back then also, first when we were online, payment options, uh, there wasn't many available. So I think we only had one payment option available. And then it's been with the likes of relationships like American Express that we've been able to really diversify those payment options for customers. And even now, uh, recently, we've been able to roll out uh, pay with points for American Express. So you can pay with your credit card points to buy your flowers, which we think is really cool. So I guess the evolution of social media has also impacted our industry quite a bit. The way that we market to customers online, uh, the rise of Google AdWords um, is a major part of the floral industry. Knowing where you want to deliver something and being able to search for flower delivery to Sydney or flower delivery to Brisbane, that's generally been on the rise since um, online has increased. Uh, and also being understanding of how we can impact uh, the environment um, with more sustainable floristry as well. And I guess over the last 15 years, we've really focused on being a data-driven company and using that data to make sure that we're not creating the waste in the first place. So making sure that we're buying what we need for when we need it, for when our customers want it, which I'm sure you can imagine is a really difficult task. Uh, We have 
about a hundred different types of flowers and greenery that we manage throughout the year. Um, so you can imagine the complexity that goes with that. And we've been able to get our wastage down to around two to three percent overall, which I think is pretty fantastic. Apart from that, though, we're always looking at ways that people are doing things internationally and talking to our local flower farms to see what other sort of uh, business practices we can adopt as well. From before the days of the pandemic until now, what kind of patterns have you noticed in customer behaviour and how has this impacted the way you future-proof your business? I think not much has changed in the way that people still want things really fast and really reliably. But we were already investing in our digital infrastructure for our um, for all of our warehouses around the country. And then when the pandemic hit, we saw a volume really increase. So people were, they couldn't visit their loved ones. They really wanted to send a message of love to people and we saw that really expand and that was a really beautiful thing to be a part of. So this meant that the advancement that we've had in our technical and digital capabilities through reliable and scalable digital practices meant that we could really provide great customer service to people uh, and reliable delivery. So I guess with more customers looking at buying online, that's meant that we've had a much more expanded customer base to talk to. And uh, thankfully, uh, they've had a really good experience with us and they've been able to experience our brand and how wonderful it is to send flowers to someone and hear the smile on someone's face when they call you or send you a message. And that's definitely driven driven a lot of uh, customer growth and repeat customers post-pandemic. So, it's been really great for us. 